Hey everyone, so we are back and today is April 27th for Push Talk. But before we get into Push Talk, don't forget that we'll be in Macon on May 21st and check out this ad of some of our past speakers. We're going to have to speak truth to power. We just have an obligation to do one thing and one thing only, and that's tell the truth. Social justice, it simply means that every human being deserves equal treatment. We must educate our people like never before. I believe without this kind of push, even in our community, we too will be able to push back the set. We must get the IDs that we need. We must show up to the polls. Get back to speaking the truth. We've got to put our foot down and say, as for me and my house, not only will we serve the Lord, but we'll look like Him. What more is what we need. Stand up for all for God's children, and let's be a one of God. We are back with a very special guest today. We have James, of course, who's with us. But we have Mackie, Miss Mackie Metzger, who's running for um, Solicitor General in Cobb County, my my, my home county, <laughs> where I stay. How are you today? I am doing great, and thank you, Sean, for having me. And nice to meet you, James. No, uh, it thank is a you real for honor. coming on. No, we are. Um, it's so privileged. So we know we're in election season, right? We have a lot of different things going on. Georgia, I tell everybody, like Georgia's the hot spot for what can happen around the country, and everybody's looking to Georgia right now. Yes. Um, so you're running for Cobb Solicitor General. I am. Kind of tell us a little about who you are, where you come from, okay. what even makes you want to run for this position. Oh, great, great! Thank you for this opportunity. First of all, I again, my name is Mackie Metzger, and um, I hail from West Africa, Sierra Leone. I um, the country of free, freed slaves. That's where my, my parents met and um, came to the United States uh, over 30 years ago and um, went to Campbell High School and other Georgia schools, obviously uh, Georgia State here in Fulton County, and also attended the University of Georgia where I obtained my law school degree. Uh, my decision to become a lawyer was obviously because I wanted to have the ability to understand the law, to be someone who wasn't helpless and knew my rights. And I think knowing the law is a very important thing, especially if you're a person of color, if you're, if you're a black woman or a man, it's good to know the law. So that was my call to the law. Of course, my dad was also a lawyer back in Africa, so I was always interested and intrigued by him because this was a man who could speak Latin, so, you know, the, the level of education. Um, and he said, well, we speak the Quinn's English, so. <laughs> he was extremely educated, and that was my calling. And then, uh, while in law school, I practiced under the Third Year Practicing Act, legal aid, I would go into the jails, talk to people, and I realized that I realized that being a prosecutor would be the most effective way for me to help people because the prosecutor gets to make the offer. In fact, the prosecutor is driving the vehicle to the next destination for that person. It's kind of like your Uber driver. So I became a prosecutor and hopefully I was in state court for 10 years here in Fulton County, and then I moved to the DA's office where I prosecuted, prosecuted felonies and also worked with juvenile youth. So I have done everything from adults, traffic, um, your ag assaults, batteries, and also um, juvenile adjudications, which involved youth in all kinds of situations, from gangs to just everything, basically. So. Making this move in Cobb County, I've lived in Cobb County with my family. I have two sons. I've lived there for 25 years with my spouse, who's an educator. I realized, you know, the incumbent was retiring. We had never had a black person in that office, ever. Not since we lived there. So it was really important to me to step up 
and do something for my county where I have lived because I know that the solicitor's office, in fact, you ask who's your solicitor, nobody knows who that solicitor is. That solicitor has never been to black communities, going to Austell, Mableton, South Cobb, nobody knew their solicitor. And all I heard were, you know, if they had any interactions with state court was, we don't feel like we were really treated as well as we thought we should have been. My position, was then and now that representation matters. We have had hundreds of years of white men leading the way and white men in leadership and no one really ever complains. You know, just as much as five years ago you had uh, under the last president, all white leadership. Um, you would see his pictures with everyone who was white and no one really complained until we said, well, our vote matters. We're gonna go out and vote and have some representation. So until you do, and May 2nd is the date to do that, certain early yes. voting, you're not going to see people who look like you in positions of leadership. But that's not all. I think that when you come to a place of um, representing people, you have to bring something more to the table. So we all have um, initiatives that we think are important, and I would love to, to speak on that, yeah. John. So one of the things that I am, um, I mean, we talked about this earlier, Black Push is a nonprofit that was, re we, re we, got, we started out dealing with people who are ex-offenders. We've expanded over the last couple of years to dealing with social injustice, voter suppression, building clergy coalitions throughout the state. Um, but going back to the metaphor, I remember I was talking to a DA, and I'm not gonna mention who they are, but, um, I asked them, well, they asked me the question. They said, who's the most powerful person in the courtroom? And by nature, in my ignorance, I said that the most powerful person in the courtroom is the judge. And she was like, no. She said, you're talking to the most powerful person in the courtroom. And she said, because as the DA's office or the solicitor's office, I charge people, which ties the hands of, of the judge on what they're able to do based upon the law. Because I can charge a person with a crime that may have a mandatory 25 years, and no matter how the judge sees it, the mandatory is, the minimum mandatory is 25 years, and that means the judge has to work within those confines. One of the things that we've seen too recently, as you know, we've just nominated our first African-American female judge to the Supreme Court, um, who actually has been confirmed. So kudos to um, Justice Jackson. Um, but we see that she was ripped in her hearings for being a prosecutor or being a, a public defender, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not something that we have a lot in our legal justice system. Like most of the time, I read an article the other day that says that 67% of judges only have the experience of being a prosecutor. Um, I think it's 72% of the DAs or state attorneys, depending on what state you're in, only have the, the background of being a prosecutor. They don't understand what it's like to look at it from the other side. We spoke about this earlier today. We have a system that is defined as being innocent until proven guilty. What can you do as solicitor if you become solicitor of Cobb County to make sure that we actually have a system that works like that, that people are treated like the innocent to prove guilty? Because people lose their life being even convicted or charged with a crime, and sometimes you're right, like we mentioned this earlier, they're completely um, guilty of it, right? But there's, there's some cases where we've gotten wrong, and people like, I think there's a case right now going on in um, oh, it's Texas, I think, where the, the person is on death row, literally. And now the evidence is, is 20 years later, and now the evidence has come out that they may not even be guilty of what they were accused of. And they're supposed to be, I think, um, they're supposed to be put to put to sleep this week, literally. And they're trying to get the governor to go back and be like, put it on hold while it's reviewed by the Supreme Court. But we know that the system has not always gotten it right. Mm -hmm. And people have lost their life in the process of the system right. trying to figure it out. Um, and even though technology has changed, um, the motives and the heart of people have not changed. So what is it that you can do as a solicitor to make sure that we are working off the metaphor of being innocent until proven guilty? Well, you're absolutely right, Sean. The system has not always worked for black and brown people. And having come from the system, Fulton County is probably the most progressive place to be, and I know Cobb is probably not as progressive. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right, there are fails in the system. that only, And because people are the system, systemic racism does not have um, the, the power without the people who support it. Right. And we know the prosecutors are people too. So the first thing you have to do, and we did this in Fulton County very effectively. In fact, when I talk about it, people stare at me like I am speaking a different language. You have to create teams of diversity in your office. If you don't have a diverse office that represents the community within which you, leave, you live in, then you are not supporting 
inclusion. You're not supporting diversity, and we should question what kind of prosecution you have in that office. That's first. Secondly, I think we need to have a rigorous training programs in these offices to deal with implicit bias. Hey, we all have bias. I'll be the first person to tell you, you know, I don't like a certain drink or a certain color, but that doesn't mean those pre-existing biases should impact the work we do. And if you have them, you should be able to identify them, confront them, and fix them. So I'm going to jump in here real quick, right? I'm going to throw this out there. So Black Push does have a piece of legislation that we're working on throughout the state. It's called the Fair Justice Act. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to go to our website and read it, read it because one of the things that it does actually would make mandatory is that every DA's office, um, judges, office, judges' chambers, and every police department will have to have some kind of implicit bias training um, because that is very important. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a judge in Cobb County in the Superior Court, and they stated to me that earlier, it was either earlier last year or earlier this year, they had done implicit bias training. And some with all the new judges and everything, some of the judges was like, they didn't know that they had bias in them, right? And until they did this. And I, I only can think of right now, currently in the counties I know of, two or three counties yeah. that the DA's office has uh, is implemented within their programs right. to do implicit bias training. And I'll give a shout out to one of those counties right now, DeKalb County. Sherry Boston does an amazing job. She makes her employees go through it twice a year. I know um, Sherry Boston. She's a fantastic DA. You know, another thing is someone like me coming in, having those women who have done these things before me, I will be reaching out to someone like Sherry Boston because I think that that's exactly the type of stuff we need. And we don't need training that is just, you know, to, for show. I'm sure that you're going to have people have, we have implicit bias training. It's called under CLE. No, we need it in-house. Yeah. We need it regularly. And we need a third party to come teach it. Because guess what? I am not qualified to teach it because that's not my skill set. I know it happens, but I think we need an expert in that field, in that area, to come have these conversations where people can feel comfortable and enough to really identify their problems. So definitely, definitely, it needs to happen. Yeah, because I mean, another thing too, and what I, I, I was just reading over your um, your brochure here, one of the things that is very important is that I think that you have in abbreviations the word care, right? Um, that a lot of times we have taken so. We've been working with Black Voters Matter recently on something called the Warrant Clinic, and we've been partnering with solicitors throughout the whole state in order to do so. We actually just had a meeting with about eight or ten different solicitors last week in reference to it, right? And what we found is that a lot of people are scared to go in the courtroom, right? And a lot of the people who are scared to go in the courtroom are people who are, minor who are considered minorities, right? Um, and it's for the, the smallest of things, a traffic ticket, but they don't want to go to court because they're afraid that something, you know what I'm saying, like it's something else or the motive is something right. different. What can we do? Um, what can you do? Because I get it, right? We have had last election, 2020, in the state of Georgia, we had a whole bunch of different, like I'll use Gwinnett County as a prime example. They elected their first African-American woman um, to the DA's office in DA Passy. Um, they have a very progressive solicitor over there in Brian Whiteside, right? Um, but one of the things that is in, 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 in important to me is that as I'm out in the community, the question is always asked, for us, like when we as a nonprofit go out with DA Patsy to an event, mm -hmm. um, how can we be standing for social justice when we're standing next to the DA's office, whatever the case may be? But I also believe that it's a two-way street that we have to be a bridge between building this connection to the community. But at the same time, we can be the bridge, but there has to be work done on both sides. Like we don't work with DHS, and I made it clear to them. I the sector, I've told the Secretary of Homeland Security this before. Like you guys have obligation just as much as we have obligation. We can be the bridge for you. But you have to start putting um, policies in place, procedures in place. Absolutely. And on top of that, it doesn't make a difference to make, like, I, I love the perception that we think that if an African-American gets in the office and they bring in all these African-Americans and they put them in leadership positions, that changes the culture of the yeah. place, right? That doesn't, right? We can have black people in leadership positions and it still don't change the, 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 the mentality of the place. Because even though they're in leadership positions, they're not in the courtroom when you go into the courtroom, right? And Right. And so let me address that a little bit because you're absolutely right. Just because you are represented does not mean that, that there's that level of progressive 
um, leadership. Right. And I have experienced that. And that is something that I struggled with. You know, I'm not going to call names, but I struggled with traditional uh, criminal justice behavior even within our communities because sometimes people are scared of changing or Mm -hmm. moving the because they don't want to be soft on crime you've heard a lot of that recently right where they blame prosecutors because there's a spike in crime and we know there's so many other reasons for crime to spike kind of like you know giving people guns without any restriction oh no who would do something like that i know georgia would do right right? Right? yeah that's (laughs) like the number one reason why people get killed access to guns freely and easily in a state where it's pretty much the wild west right so that's the number one reason for the spike in crime and it's disheartening because i see young kids having access to guns because there are no limitations. That's the reason, that's the number one reason. But of course, we're not gonna talk about that because it's, um, you know, we don't wanna pick on the governor, but we'll, we'll let Stacey Abrams deal with him. My position though, when we talk about progressive prosecutors, I think that not just having the, the people who represent our communities. I think that's very important, actually, because if you talk to a white prosecutor coming from a white silo, they don't understand that maybe a black kid may run because they're scared of police. But culturally, our experiences with law enforcement are very different from other people. And that run-in might actually be the most logical thing to an 18-year-old who feels like, oh my god, I got a little weed and seed, let me run. That's pretty normal. You're gonna run when you're scared. But a black prosecutor would understand that because we understand that historically, police officers have been used to terrorize black communities. In fact, when you look at all those civil rights picks, the people tear gassing us and hurting us with batons were police. The state used the police to hurt black people so and keep them in line. So we understand that and we can have these conversations as professionals. And I know it's hard, because sometimes you don't want to do that in a professional setting. We will have procedures in place, which is what I call the next step, data analysis. Within what we do, because I want to know, prosecutors are going to have to be accountable with regards to their offers. We will have set standards, but they're going to have to create reports every month and send them to me. Because I need to see what they're offering and whether those offers are in line with what I would consider appropriate offers and whether those offers create opportunities for rehabilitation and whether they're doing it equally. Yeah, that's important. I I remember there was a case we had recently where there was a young man in Florida who was accused of, I mean, it was was a heinous crime, don't get me wrong. But when we looked at the data, like the people who have been charged with the same record he had, um, from the same background, this was a college kid, mm-hmm. first time, first of his generation to go to college, 19 years old. He got sentenced to 25 years when it, 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 the state didn't require that as a minimum. And people prior to him had gotten like five years in, 20 years on probation and stuff like this. But he got sentenced to 25 years in prison straight. Never been in trouble before a day in his life. And if you look at the facts of the case, there was still some like, as, as a regular person, not even an attorney, you can look at it and be like, wait, this doesn't make sense, or the statement here doesn't make sense, or this doesn't line up. Um, and, and I think that we have, to, I remember, so I don't know if we've discussed this, I'm an ex-offender, right? And I got in trouble in Florida, and I remember one time when I had went back, I violated probation, I got out of jail, violated probation, and I went back, and there was a judge named Mark E. Walker. You can look him up, he's actually the chief federal judge in the state of Florida now. So a lot of the things that get shot down, he's usually the one shooting it down. And he was so meticulous and when he looked at my case like when he looked at it he didn't just see me as a piece of paper he seen me as a person and he took the time even though it was a busy calendar he took the time and he actually was like well this doesn't make sense why are we trying to send him here when he doesn't even score out and why did we even send him that to begin with and he was like mrs smith i'm going to do this i'm going to look over your case i'll bring you back tomorrow and if everything you said is right, I'm going to terminate your probation because there's no reason why we should have you in two different courtrooms. And my, I had a public defender at the time, was not aware of how the system worked. Mm-hmm. But I was getting hit with check charges, and I was in check court, but they were still charging me with check charges in the felony division, too. Which, in Florida, they have a division that dealt directly with that. So if I violated probation, I was violating in two different places. Right. 
And I remember him bringing me back the next day, and he said, I know that the state is not going to like this, but this is my plea. This is my thing. He said, first off, Mr. Smith, what I'm saying to you is that I'm not saying that your violation is okay. And he made that clear. Mm -hmm. He says, but the, the, the way we sentenced you was not okay. And I apologize for the, for the, and this is all on transcript. I keep the transcript because I, I just thought it was so powerful. But he apologized to me for how I was sentenced. And he ended up giving me, like, I think at that time I had, like, five days in the county jail. He gave me five days in the county jail, five days time. So when the state stepped up and was like, Your Honor, he was like, I don't want to hear anything else. Send him back to check court because that's where the case should have been handled at. And that was, like, 15 years ago. But the crazy part was that he looked at me as a person, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think that we have enough people in our law enforcement community that see people as people. And I think that a part of it is that going back to the principle of understanding that, you know what, this person who has this deep, this problem with alcohol or drugs could be my child, right? And if it's my child, how would I want to have dealt with that situation differently? And I challenge, like, I love, like, I, I love the uh, like collaboration, accountability, rehabilitation, education, solutions. What I love so much about the way you were, use the word care is it's not talking about how do I lock the person up. It's talking about how do I make the person work in a society, right? If the person was caught for stealing from the store, what was the source of that? Um, and now that we know the source of that, we're not going to just pat them on the back and say, okay, what you did is okay. But we can rehabilitate you at the same time, hold you accountable. And I think that's a, like you were talking about earlier about being creative and how we do this. So what is your view of being creative when you come, when you talk about? Being creative. Mm -hmm. I, that's, I, I really want to talk about that. The law allows us to do things after you've been convicted, like expungements, which I don't think even go far enough. Like, and I, I talked to Ms. Abrams about that last week. Like, um, record restrictions. I'm not talking about after the fact how we can come back and fix it. I'm talking about while your case is pending. First of all, we have to be efficient and do it quickly. Right. Because if you have a substance abuse problem, we shouldn't be waiting to kick the can down two years from now and then asking you to be accountable when maybe you've already received treatment. Right. It, it, it seems like a moot point, right? Or when you've now committed new offenses, we need to be creative early in the outset of those cases. So you have to take your cases out, put them in categories. Which ones do you consider family violence? Which ones do you consider? And have attorneys who you have talked to and instructed on how to deal with those theft crimes in one pile of categories. Um, DUIs in one pile of categories, because you want to see which cases are, first of all, do I have enough evidence to prosecute this case? you don't have enough evidence today, you're not going to have enough evidence two years from now. That case needs to go away. That's just an evidence thing, based thing. And then you look at cases where people have done what they said, what they supposedly had done, and you say, well, is this a you know, good pretrial diversion? And in pretrial diversion, how can we resolve it? What are the problems? They have an attorney, you need to reach out to their attorney and talk to them and have that open conversation like, hey. I want to give you a pretrial diversion. You got to work with me. I do this every day. Like, I see that your client may be stealing, but I also see in their history they have uh, drug offenses. Do they need to go to rehab? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it because you're not stealing things because you need things. You're stealing things because you need things for your drug addiction. Right. So there's so many things happening with individuals when you see one crime that might not just be the only thing going on with them and you fix it right there. If it's family violence, what do you do? We have a lot of family violence problems and they stem from mental health, they stem from drug abuse, and they stem from just people who basically have that cycle growing up and they don't know another way to communicate. You have to identify what is the problem and then craft a solution that makes sense for that individual because everybody's coming to us it might be the same crime but they may have different problems right and you right. have to start early i mean within, within the first three months you should know where that case is going to end up right um battery cases we have family problems people call the police so that they can come make things better right like the police officer is going to make it stop well generally the police officer is going to arrest someone that person's going to go to jail they're going to potentially you know lose their job one of the things we need to look at is making sure we have bonds or uh, systems in place where people can get out of jail quickly because if you need to go get an attorney, you need a job. Yeah. And we need to get you out of jail. And it's a misdemeanor offense. These are not felonies. 
these are not the cases that we should be holding you on. And so those are the, the early ways that you can deal with cases. You deal with them with first appearance, you deal with them um, um, pre-accusation, but you should not be accusing all your cases. All those cases are not crimes, and all those crimes are not cases that should be going in a courtroom. Right, and so I, you have and to make early decisions. I would even challenge you at this part, even if it's a felony. I think well, that it's still. I know. I mean, right, right, right. just in general, right? Even if it's a felony, if we have a system that says you're innocent until proven guilty, we have to honor that system. Absolutely. And there's a difference between like when we look at like a Nathan Dillon, right? Where we know he went into the church in South Carolina and he murdered the people. He submitted to it, but there's a reasonable doubt. And as you stated, that when I've known. DA's officers who know that, like, they would literally say, there's no evidence here for us, for, uh, us to um to actually go forward with this case, but we're going to go forward with it anyway because it's, this person has a record, this person doesn't have a record, their word is more valuable than theirs, right? And that is wrong. And, and that's wrong, right? <laughs> and and that's what I'm saying, like, in, in, in even part of the legislation that we were talking about earlier that we were looking at passing, it eliminates being able to make public people who have been just charged or even indicted with a crime, Right. I don't feel like it should be public information until a person is actually charged and actually convicted. We said that they have a right to appear before a grand jury or a jury, right, of your peers. Then why are you on the front page of somebody's newspaper? And even for misdemeanors and drug charges, the person gets arrested today, tomorrow everybody in the world knows about it, right? How do we deal with those issues? Because at the same time, like you stated, you lose your job, you can't afford an attorney. Um, you lose your job that you were stealing before, you think that it's going to become better now that you don't have a job. Um, and it just becomes a slippery slope, and we have so many people. And and I'm not and I'm not that I'm not that biased to only say that this is a black or or a brown issue, right? It, it does affect us hugely, right? But at the same time, I think that just doing right by people in general, whether they're Asian, whether they're white, whether they're black, because there's been some white people who've been screwed over by the system as well, right? Well, and we've I, had cases like that. I, I feel... And I'm not saying that about you. I'm just saying no, in general. No, no, you're absolutely right. I feel that the people who we see in the front news every day tend to be black people. Absolutely. And that is the bias of maybe, I don't know, but that's whoever's even, putting those faces on there. I don't even think that's bias. I just think that I call it Jim Crow through 4.0, right? When they stopped, when they, when they couldn't beat us and hang us from, from trees... They figured out other ways to hang us from trees, and they figured out other ways to beat us, right? It's definitely a problem. Even voting rights. I mean, we kind of talked about it earlier. When we went out and voted, it was never an issue in the state of Georgia. Voting was working fine. I think I was reading the other day that, so in Florida recently, um, Governor DeSantis, which is he's such a great example of what we need in America, um, Governor DeSantis literally um, has, has signed the law where they now have a police commission in the state of Florida that deals with voter fraud, right? They have police officers now, a police force that deals with voter fraud, right? But the crazy part is that over 1.8 million people, and I'm, I'm using just estimates on these numbers, but it's over a million people voted in the last election, right? And you asked him how many people was actually, like, cases were actually voter fraud. They said it was like over 120 cases that was submitted over to them, and only 40 of them were prosecuted or sent to be prosecuted. So far, they've only prosecuted one, and the one that they did prosecute was not even on the other side. It was somebody who actually went and voted for DeSantis twice, right? So it's interesting that we talk about voter fraud, but it was only when it became an issue when African Americans got and voted. And even in Georgia, we look at it like I think I, I watched. I did watch the um, debate the other day. Uh, it was very interesting. I read to me. about it. I, I read watched about the whole, it. It was good. Are, it, yeah, was good. Uh, it was good. It was good. Um, and depending on what side of the you stand on, like it was, it was good information. But it was just funny to watch them go back and forth about voting fraud, about vote election fraud. And I think at one point, um, Purdue had mentioned to um, Senator, former Senator Purdue had mentioned to our current governor Brian Kemp. Was like, well, we, you know, we our 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 um our office turned over somebody to you who had committed voter fraud. He said, well, we reached out to the person, and they won't even you won't even give us the name of the person, right? We how do we investigate something we don't know what we investigate, right? But the reality is that in Georgia, there's only been two cases that have been indicted for voting for voting fraud, and both of those two people were people who were Republican. So it's like, what are we? What is voter fraud? Voter fraud is we don't like the results. Right. So we voter change the rules. Is, voter yeah. fraud is Purdue lost and he has to blame someone. Yeah, and Governor Kim made that very clear to him. Voter fraud <laughs> is essentially that Trump lost because no one wanted him to represent them. Well, 
I won't say no one, there's still people out mm, there, yeah. but most sane people decided that they wanted sanity in the White House. And not being able to accept those results tells us again the madness and insanity of a Republican Party that has no platform. Because you have no platform, you have to create fiction. Yeah. And that's where we are, unfortunately, in this country. We're dealing with we're dealing with uh, a party that has no platform for their people. They're not selling anything other than a diet of hate. So obviously, when people like myself stand up and run for office, it's because I'm tired of it. And I think for the first time, you know, the blinders were taken off. Mm -hmm. Because for me, really, as a prosecutor, I always felt like we were following the law, we were doing the right thing. But with with someone like Trump, I realized that the law for him was a joke. It just depended on what he wanted done that day. And to put people like that in positions of power Power. is extremely frightening. And I'm not even, you know, the crazy part is that Without talking about, like, for me personally, without going, like, Democrat, Republican, right? The fact of the matter is that you brought up a very valid point. If you have money or if you have a power, the system changes for you. I remember somebody called me one time and they were, like, very upset about the Alec Baldwin situation. It was like, if that was a black actor, they would have arrested him right away. And I said to them, it was like, I don't know if that's true, right? I couldn't see them going in and just pulling a Chris Rock off of a, a set because he mistakenly shot somebody. Again, knowing the detail, I, I couldn't see it, right? But also, too, you look at you look at um, Deshaun Watson. What he just got through out of Texas, the average African-American, right, who has no money, who comes from a very poor neighborhood, would have been buried by now with the amount of accusations he had. And I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying no, whether it's right or wrong. I'm saying point. that money does point. money should not drive the system. It does drive the system. But we also have to be very careful because, like, we look at states like New York that has made it like a state thing to, for cash bail bonds, right? And I was down meeting with the state of New York a couple, like a month ago because I want to understand cash bail bonds. So as we're trying to present legislation in here in, Florida, in Georgia for cash bail bonds, we don't make the same mistakes because it also... I mean, we don't want to let any any and everybody back out in the streets, right? Because so there's some people who need to be held in in in, in jail. Right? Let's be honest, right? right? right. On, um, on your misdemeanor offenses, though. Yeah, I mean, misdemeanors. Here's, are here's here's what I would say, and this is why I'm very interested in misdemeanors. It's where things start. It's where the trajectory of a person going in the other direction. Now, not necessarily always. I mean, yeah. if you're speeding, you really just need to pay your ticket and move on, right, and get your best deal. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about cases where we start seeing some level of violence, like your batteries, your family violence. Those are important. Like drinking and driving on the roadways where you have maybe a problem and you keep doing it, but and you hit a point where there are two things that, that really get me. One is definitely people who can buy their way out of the system and responsibility and accountability because they can get the best 20, pay $20,000 or $30,000 for, say, I'm not going to name names, the best defense attorney here, and they will come and wear us ragged. They will file appeals when they lose. They will file motions for a new trial. It's like, a, you know, they do this consistently because they're paying, so you don't get a history, so you don't even spend one day in jail. Right. And that is wrong. We're not supposed to be a system that modifies the law because you can afford to get out of trouble which is exactly why I'm pretty much self-funded. I don't really want rich defense attorneys telling me how to run my office when I get there. I feel like the special interests like that are the problem where they can influence a prosecutor. Because if someone can tell you how to run your office and how to run your cases because they've given you money, a good bit of money, you have a problem. Yeah. That's an integrity problem. So, you know, the first thing I say if somebody's a defense attorney is, hey, this isn't going to change how we handle our cases towards your clients. Just, just let's cover that quickly because that's important to me. Integrity matters. If on day one you've already sold your soul, you can't do this job. Right. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, and I, I, you were talking about bonds, you have to meet people where they are, obviously. Not everybody has money. Not everybody can pay a cash bond. If you're homeless and you've been picked up for uh, vagrancy, vagrancy, exactly, or even disturbing a business. Now, there are two interests at play. 
I want to make sure you're not disturbing people when they go buy their stuff because people want to shop and not be bothered. But I also want to make sure this homeless person that we can find them housing. And a lot of times homelessness, if believe it or not, is tied to mental health. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we are not addressing that problem because they don't just want to go live in a home. You can put them in a home because I've tried that. They have a mental health problem that needs to be addressed first. If they can't if they can't be made whole up here, there's no housing that's gonna fix that problem. But we're not we're not addressing these very social I mean, if I could get a social worker in every state court to start processes of putting people in the right places with the right services, that's what I would do. I would look for that, but in, in, in lieu of that, if I can't do that, I will definitely be getting the right types of grant funding. Um, I will be talking to legislators to see if we can expand Medicaid so that we can have Medicaid in the court system for people who can't afford health care. I consider mental health care health care. Yeah. I consider substance abuse health care. All these things are very tied in to how healthy people are going to be. And what do we want ultimately in our society? And this is not a Democrat, Republican thing. We want less crime. We don't. It benefits all of us. We want um, healthy communities where people can actually be productive. We do. We want people to live in a society where they feel safe in their persons, in their homes, in their belongings. You want to go out and know that if you have a traffic offense, you're going to get a traffic ticket without being killed on the side without of the street. potentially losing your life. Right. And we, the, another thing that I have been thinking about a lot lately, because it feels like every case that involves, a lot of the cases that involve black men being killed are minor traffic offenses or, bench, or even people sleeping in their houses being shot because somebody came into their own house, bench warrants. I feel like we should pretty much eliminate those things. Yeah, no knock warrants. Yeah. We need to eliminate that because obviously police officers are scared of going to people's homes that they don't know. Um, these traffic offenses, a lot of the suspension, license suspensions that kind of get these people, you, you know, if you're driving a car and you, your license is suspended, police officers pulling you over, you might be scared and you may act scared and that may spoof the officer. We probably need to stop doing those uh, suspensions, FTAs, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people are transient. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have like a fixed address. Yes, we know it's their responsibility by a lot to let us know, but people are always moving around. Yeah. And if that's the case, we need to give them, we need to do a little bit more research to find them, and the agencies need to work. What's the whole point of having Agencies like your labor agency, which can, which can tell you where their last check went for a paycheck or whatever, um, and not pursue that in terms of research as opposed to issuing a warrant that means that someone's going to go arrest them, and that arrest may lead to an unnecessary death. You shouldn't lose your life over a traffic offense. That, to me, is egregious yeah. that, that that's ever happened. Um, and we see that happening more so... Um, here's the reality, while, while white people may suffer um, bad behavior, they're not the ones losing their lives for minor things like that. And that's just the reality, that's what we have seen, and that's what has spurred you know, Black Lives Matter, it has spurred people to become a little bit more aware mm -hmm. that, that there is really very little equity when it comes to the actual execution of justice, because justice should not come at that price. Yeah. And I would just say this. Like, I would even say that even those who have the luxury of being able to pay, like, pay for a good attorney's right, I'm not going to knock them. I just think that justice has to be fair, right? Well, yeah, that's my it's, point. It's You're going to get the same consistent. offer. You're not going to get a better right. offer because you could, you could spend $20,000 $20, $20, on, on an attorney. Not, uh, so that expectation, I just threw that amount up there. <laughs> I don't know what these fees are these days. Yeah. But... You should not expect the system to bend over backwards for, for you. you because you have money. But I think that what really exposed the system, and I think what really exposed the system is our, is our last presidential administration. It pushed and is still pushing um, the limits of what the law can do, right? We look at the past president 
there's no doubt he's broken plenty of laws. And for those who don't like it, the reality is what it is, right? But the fact of the reality is that they can't find a way at any point to try to tie him to some of the law. Like it's audio. I think recently I just heard audio of um, Kevin Kevin from the U, the U.S. congressman, and he's I mean in audio admitting some of these things and admitting like. I mean, in text messages that are coming out between the Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas' wife, and the, you know what I'm saying? But it, if that was the average, what drives me crazy, again, what drives me crazy, if that was the average person, if that was the average person, and I was not, or if that person was not Clarence Thomas' wife, what they would have done would have been illegal, and somebody would have gone after that, and that would have been, that person would have been charged well, with a crime. Let me just state this. What he did, having... <laughs> January 6th, let's go to that for yeah. starters. You have the president who's lost basically having a rally and telling people to do something about it, and then they go rush the Capitol yeah. after they had just had a conversation with him. And those words that he gave them, those the fire he put in their belly, was what cost lives that day. His words. Yes. That is treason. Yeah. That is treason. It's treason. It's treason. That is a crime. And what he did yes. almost destroyed this the democracy in this country. We were struggling before he got here. But what he did was divide America. He divided us as a nation, as a race, as a people. It was so hurtful that I I don't know how we get back because obviously he hasn't stopped. Yeah. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, my question, and I know we were going a little bit long, but my question has been whether we would ever get back, right? <laughs> or rather, he exposed something in America that America was trying to throw a blind eye to, right? Um, I remember in the 2020 election, I remember posting something on Facebook saying that this election is not really about Democrat or Republicans, it's not about Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. It's about, it was about, it was, for me, it felt like it was about the, the spirit of the nation. What we were voting on was really what kind of nation we were going to be, right, going forward. All I can say is Republicans took a very clear path, which was we stand for racism. And, you know, yeah. when, just, when, when your position is, is racist and you have, this, this country is not made of just one group of people. Right. It, and that informs all your conversations. You know, I'm running for office, and you know that. I go out and talk to people. And one of the first things that they, they want to talk to me about, if they're white, in Cup County, which is, I, I went home really exhausted the other day. We had great, lovely conversations because I like to listen to what people have to say, even if I don't agree. They wanted to talk to me about what I was going to do about my, you know, my people mm-hmm. who were a problem line? and yeah. who committed all these crimes. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, just think about this for one minute. How is it that I want to do something and represent all of you, but I have to be burdened with every bad thing every black person has done? You would never do that to a white candidate. Never. You yeah. would never burden them emotionally like that. I don't stand for all black crime. I don't represent all black behavior that's bad, but those conversations are happening, and it's kind of a burden because because that's not what I'm running about, even though I know we have problems, but do white people go out and kill en masse and do bad things? Is that is that going to is, is the other candidate going to be asked why we have um, white kids killing black people is that going to be a burden he has to carry and they'll ask him what he's going to do about it i seriously doubt that yeah maybe we should <laughs> but now i do want to ask this question though yes, sir. so you said about candidates need to bring more to the table yes sir what is your more my more is we need to well the cares that i the cares vision that i have um, put forth first of all collaboration Okay. We need to collaborate widely. We're not just going to collaborate within Cobb County. We need to bring in other groups that can actually help us, whether it's nonprofits, whether it's... We see a lot of youth in the system, so youth development is important. Bringing um, 
I go to like the small business associations, bring in jobs that are not just minimum wage jobs, doing job um, workshops, making sure that you have a GED before you leave me. I want, and, and, and you know, this. They, they say I'm idealistic. I'm probably one of your more idealistic. Even Democrats say you, your idealism is mo- too much. In order to do the work, you have to have idealism. And you have to have hope. And I have those things. So I am bringing more in terms of my perception and my ideas. But it will be more concrete, obviously, when I have the office. I don't have the office to do more yet. But collaborating so that we can do, you know, when you tell people to go get a job, and the job that they're looking at is a minimum wage job, <clears throat> that they're never going to push themselves out of that. I was talking to a girlfriend of mine, and she said, listen, my kid does not want to go work uh, doing heavy menial work for UPS, whatever, Target, and all those places, because first of all, they don't really treat you properly. They abuse your body. You don't have health care. Health care, again, we go to that. You're not going to make enough money to support your family, and you will never rise up to the middle class. So can we start looking for jobs where people can rise up or have the hope of rising up to the middle class? No offense to Walmart and Target, but they're really not the answer for us, and that's what people keep pushing at our young people. So job training, technical training, moving people out of poverty, because that's the economic development is very important. And you can start that in those courtrooms. You can start liaison and bringing people together, ensuring people don't have a criminal history. Who wants to hire a thief? Right. I know I don't. <laughs> I see that on your record. So ensuring that that's not on their histories going forward. And then we have things in place, like I said, record restriction. But I want to do it even before then. Your yeah. pretrial diversion is where it needs to happen. And my thing is, carrot and stick. You do this for me, your case goes away. It gives you more of an incentive rather than we're just going to dismiss your case and then I've done nothing for you. And I would say this as we end, like for those who have the argument that um, having mindsets like that has a higher rise in crime, that's not true. That's not statistically true. Um, We have seen where when we give people opportunities to be successful, that they don't usually come back into the system. The problem is that a lot of people, the system it's like that whole the system screwed me so I'm going to go back and try to screw the system mentality um, that's something that we have to get rid of and I would I'm going to stay tuned to your can, your um, you. your campaign thank you very much I'll be going to vote in Cobb next week <laughs> on May 2nd <laughs> and I will you. remind thank everybody you. she is in Cobb she's thank running for you. the Cobb Solicitor General's Office and early voting in Cobb starts just like it starts across the state of Georgia on May 2nd I want to put a plug in. Um, I want to thank, I guess, the pastor of your church, um, Iconium, Timothy McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you, Sean, and you, James, and um, for having me here today. And, um, you know, Fulton County is where I started. So, obviously, a lot of thanks to all the leaders I worked with in Fulton County, whether or not they were completely in line with me ideologically. Um, those experiences really informed me from the DA's office to the solicitor's office here in Fulton County. That's that's sort of my educational background. And I am hoping that once I go to the uh, Cobb County solicitor's office that we can train up young attorneys, and this is not a color thing, to become leaders. Because this and, is not just about me. Yes, yeah, about, yeah. And, and I would also, too, if they want to find out more information about you, they can go and find it out where. Um, Metzger, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, the number four, Cobb Solicitor, um, General.com. So that's Metz, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, for Cobb Solicitor General? Or just Cop Solicitor? For CopSolicitor.com. For CopSolicitor.com. But, I mean, we'll have yeah. the link also in, in the bottom of this if I you want to go out to her website, <laughs> check out some of the more information about her on her website. Um, just know that, please, everybody, If even no matter where you agree at or, or where you fall at on the um, political spectrum, the most valuable voice we have is the right to vote. So go out and vote next week starting May 2nd. Um, a big election day is May 24th. We had um, early voting day on, on yesterday. Who yes. kind of talked about the importance of getting out and voting early. So I'll be out there on May 2nd. Um, find your precinct. If you don't know where it's at, go to mvp.sos.ga.gov. 
um, and know where your precinct is at. Know whether you register to vote. Know your status. Um, it's too important in this election. Um, like I said earlier, I said that January or November 2020 was a um, check on the soul of this nation. This election is just as much of a check on the soul of this nation. If not more. If not more. If not more. Because we are, we are at a crossroads where what we saw five years ago is malignant. It's still around. And um, they're fighting to take away our ability to self-determine, to vote, to suppress the vote. I have never seen anything like this in my, you know, you say we, we now see the, the wolves been taken out of our eyes, but it's out in the open. We yeah. can see it. So the only way that you can counter it is to go out and vote because that is our power. And because that is the most powerful thing, that is the one thing they will be attacking each and every day. Absolutely. Thank you so much again Thank for you. coming on with Thank us today. Um, we want to remind everybody that I think that we have, um, we have the, and I'm going to make a correction on um, the one court conference, the fourth one court conference. That's actually in Macon on May 21st. Um, Augusta. Augusta. I'm sorry. Augusta, May 21st. We'll be in Macon on June 25th. 25th for our fifth one court conference. And then we'll be closing out um, this segment or this quarter in July, on July 16th, is it? Yes. July 16th, we'll be at the Omni doing our um, Black Push Inaugural Gala honoring a night of service, but we'll be honoring people like Reverend Timothy McDonald, Reverend Shannon Jones, Miss um, Deborah Scott from Georgia Stand Up, Miss Helen Butler, um, Zanona Clayton from the Trumpet Awards Foundation. We have um, who Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. Yes. We have so many different people we're getting ready to honor um, July 16th. So go to our website to find out more information about the gala to be hosted at the CNN Omni. And without that, this is a clip of some of the work we've done over the last 12 months, not even the last 12 months, really the last six months. Um, and until tomorrow, we'll be back again. See you, and don't forget to go out and vote. What are you going to do? What are you going to do?